I'm Warren Smith, and today you'll be listening in on my conversation with author, speaker, and the president of Reformed Theological Seminary's Charlotte campus, Dr. Michael Kruger. His new book is Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. Spiritually abusive leaders are leaders who are authoritarian and domineering over those in their charge. And spiritual abuse is when a leader like that is in a position of spiritual authority over somebody. Dr. Michael Kruger is not, at first glance, an obvious choice to write about spiritual abuse, which has become one of the hot-button issues in the evangelical church today. In fact, he's best known as a New Testament scholar and a seminary president. But it is precisely at the intersection of these two vocational passions that he found a third calling. After all, what better place is there to talk about spiritual abuse than at an institution that trains future church leaders? Mike Kruger believes that we need strong leaders who are also gentle shepherds. He warns against the lure of celebrity that has led many pastors to ruin. And he says, first and foremost, churches should prize character as much as we prize giftedness when we look for pastors to lead our churches. Dr. Michael Kruger was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society in 2019, and he's the author of previous books, including Christianity at the Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church. You can listen in on our conversation in just a moment. We Live invites and equips Christians to propel faith into action. This free worldview Bible study will spark rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions. These six videos from Summit Ministries offer life-on-life discipleship for churches, small groups, and families. Get free access today at summit.org slash listening in. Well, Dr. Michael Kruger, welcome to the program. And, you know, Mike, my first question for you is this. Uh, why did you write this book? I mean, it's not an obvious choice for somebody with your background and somebody who's, you know, written other books that are much more academic and scholarly in nature. Well, thanks, Warren. Great to be on the show and, and good to talk with you about this. And yeah, I mean, you're right. This book is definitely uh, in some ways new territory for me. I mean, if anybody knows my background, I write more on New Testament canon and origins of the Bible and these sorts of things. And and that's where most of my publications have been. But I'm also a seminary president. I'm also a pastor. Um, and we spent a lot of time here at RTS thinking about the kind of leaders we're producing. And and I have a, a somewhat of a pulse, at least on the national scene, trying to see what's going on out there. And honestly, for the last several years, I've been concerned um, about what I'm seeing. And I've, I've been concerned for a while. I think it was in the last several years that sort of coalesced where I sort of could put my my finger on the problem and sort of articulate it. And this was long before the, the whole concept of spiritual abuse became sort of the national topic since Mike Cosper's podcast. Everyone seems to be talking about it now, but I had actually been already in the weeds of it before that. And so, yeah, it's just me watching what's going on with quite a bit of concern, not only at the national level, the, the cases that everybody knows about, but also just 
in my own circles, I see things just as a seminary president. And uh, I think we need to do some sharp thinking about what kind of leaders we're producing. Yeah. In fact, you say very early in your book, uh, in the introduction of the forward to the book, we need to think more carefully about the type of leaders we are producing. Now, that seems to suggest to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, that maybe the very process that we're requiring people to go through might be a contributing factor here and that we need to actually change the process. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, I'm saying lots of things um, by that statement because it can capture a lot of things. Certainly, the process is part of it. I think uh, a large part of it is sort of what we're looking for, and I know that's part of process. So I think we've we've trained ourselves in the American scene to look for a certain type of person to be a leader. And I argue throughout the book, as you know, that that I don't know that I see those <laughs> those characteristics as highlighted in the Bible as primary leadership characteristics. Um, and as I point out elsewhere, the Bible is much more concerned about character than it is about giftedness when it comes to pastoral ministry. And so, yeah, you could call that process. You could also call that sort of desire or model of ministry. Um, you know, do seminaries play a role in this? Yes, we do. Although I always remind people, we don't ordain anybody. We just train people and we could do a better job, obviously all the time. We always think about how we can do better, but but I think it's, it's a combination of many factors, but one of them is I think we've just been trained to think a certain kind of person is the kind of leader we need. Yeah, I want you to uh, drill down a little bit more into uh, something you just said, which is that we tend to um, value, venerate, look for, and are drawn to gifts over character. Sometimes the way I say it is, is that people rise based on their competence and fall based on their character. It seems to be that you're saying something very similar to that. Um, what sort of gifts are we looking at these days and, and sort of celebrating and which ones should we be looking for? Yeah. So if you look at a passage like First Timothy 3, which is one of the classic texts that tells you what someone who's called to be a pastor should be. Now, again, my book covers more than pastors, but let's at least start there. Every one of the qualifications but one is about character. And the only one that's about giftedness is the ability to teach. Uh, and so in terms of sort of where we want to start, we want to start with a recognition that you need to be able to teach. Then after that, character is the main thing that matters. Instead, what we're looking for, I think, in the church today is not so much about character, but about someone who's dynamic, someone who is a powerful leader, someone who's inspirational, someone who's strong, someone who, quote, gets things done. Now, Certainly, we would value many of those things, right? There's nothing wrong with, with strong leaders, and there's nothing wrong with someone who gets things done. But when you only look at that at the expense of character, you end up setting yourself up for a real problem because those aren't the kind of leaders that are held accountable very easily. And if, if their character isn't there, they're going to need to be held accountable. And so we've created this problem where we put someone up who doesn't necessarily have the character, but we have no accountability structure to go with it. And why are we so surprised? Perhaps they were having all these problems. Yeah, you know, it's it's. It, I don't mean to go too far down a rabbit trail on this, Mike, but it's always interesting to me that there is kind of this nexus um, in the Christian publishing world, in the uh, Christian conference and speaker world, between leadership and pastoral ministry. A lot, in fact, a lot of times when a pastor washes out of pastoral ministry because of a character issue, they end up writing a leadership book. <laughs> <laughs> or you end up with a lot of uh, leadership writers, and I'm thinking, of, for example, of a, of a John Maxwell, for example, who speaks often in churches. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, leadership is good. Let's just stipulate for the record that leadership is not necessarily inherently a negative thing. 
But I think it is tangible evidence of exactly what you were saying, right? That we value the wrong things when we look for leaders. Yeah. And, and I would argue that the term leader isn't really even a, a very common biblical category. In some English translations, we use the term leader in certain passages, and that's fine. I'm not objecting to that. But what people have in their mind in our day when they use the term leader is not, not, not you can't just impose that on scripture. And in our day, as you indicated, we've taken more of a corporate business model for leadership and then just stuck it on the church. And so when people think about, you know, John Maxwell or others like that, lots of times you're, you're looking at sort of corporate models for leadership and thinking, how can we utilize this for the church? And so we're creating little CEOs running churches like companies. Now, again, some of those principles are common grace insights we can be we can benefit from. And I'm not saying all those books are inaccurate. I'm sure they're not. I'm sure they have helpful advice. But we're, we've got the cart before the horse here. You know, you've got to have a <laughs> again, we got to start with the biblical structure of what a leader should be and make character primary. And then we can sort of massage some of the ways to improve the way he executes his role, but not at the expense of the of the qualifications. And I think that's where we get in trouble. Yeah. So let's stipulate for the record then that leadership per se is not evil. It's not wrong. It's not bad. There can be positive biblical ways to exercise leadership, but there can also be toxic ways. I mean, Satan doesn't create, he corrupts. So he takes a beautiful thing, this, this idea of leadership, and, um, and he does corrupt it. And often that corruption shows up as a practical matter in um, what we have come to call lately spiritual abuse. You've already used yep. the term at least once in our conversation. Yep. Can you define it for us? What do you mean by spiritual abuse? And more specifically, what is it not? Yeah, as you might imagine, and you know, you've got a pre-pub copy of the book. I, I spent a lot of time on this uh, to make sure people understand what it is and what it isn't. And a lot of people have written on it. I pull in prior research. I pull in my own research. The short version for a conversation like this is basically spiritually abusive leaders are leaders who are authoritarian and domineering over those in their charge. And spiritual abuse is when a leader like that is in a position of spiritual authority over somebody. So you can be abusive you know, as a boss to the people you work with at your work. Okay, fair enough. But spiritual abuse is when a spiritual leader endowed with spiritual authority executes his office in such a way that he sort of domineers, uh, runs down, and, and rules in a harsh and authoritarian way those under his leadership, all the while thinking he's accomplishing God's good work. Now, this is where the title comes in, right? Bully pulpit. Effectively, spiritual abusive leaders are spiritual bullies, right? They manipulate. They domineer and they do it awfully in harsh and cruel ways under their other people under their care. Now, I go into a lot of this particulars of this. What is it not? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things spiritual abuse is not. Spiritual abuse is not just making a mistake in a, in a, in a conversation. Spiritual abuse is not just is just making a relational misstep where you say something bothersome or offensive to somebody on occasion. Uh, spiritual abuse does not necessarily just standing up for spiritual truth. Right. If I tell someone something sin, that's not abusive if it's, in fact, sin according to the Bible. So there's lots of things that spiritual abuse is not. But most of the time I describe this to people, they actually know people in their lives that are like this. And this is a thing that has been stunning to me as I've written a book, the, the tsunami of emails I've received from people um, saying, wow, you just described my pastor has been pretty shocking to me. And I, I knew it was a problem, but I think it may be bigger than we even know. Yeah. Whenever um, I have written about 
people that are involved in spiritual abuse. And I've written, you know, a lot lately, unfortunately, on this topic. I, you know, um, I covered the Mark Driscoll story probably 10 years ago for World Magazine. I've written about Ravi Zacharias more recently, Jerry Falwell Jr., and, and many, many others. Yeah, Most, I mentioned all, all those names in my book. You, you know. Exactly. I was, in fact, I was going to make that point, and I appreciated that because you were not afraid uh, to name names appropriately. You didn't pile on, but you, I think yeah. that you appropriately used real world examples where real world examples. Only in the way I could with it's a public case. And of course, as you know, I also mentioned a bunch of private cases I don't mention names in. That's right. So uh, given that, you know, that reality and whenever I write about it, and I'm sure whenever you've talked about them or mentioned them in the book, you've gotten some pushback that sounds a little like this. Mike, touch not God's anointed right? These folks are having such great success. People are coming to, you know, coming to Jesus as a result of their preaching. Uh, Folks are maturing in their faith. Families are thriving. Churches are growing. You know, money is being poured out from this church to ministry. Touch not God's anointed. What's your response to that? Golly, so many things. First of all, the touch not God's anointed is entirely a misapplication of that language referring to, I think, the person's trying to refer to how David thought of Saul. Obviously, we're not talking about God's anointed king here. We're not talking about anybody with sort of that direct uh, divine office. More than that, even people who were kings, even people like David, were not above the law, so to speak, in a way that they could behave however they wanted to with no accountability. And even David committed sexual abuse uh, with Bathsheba um, and certainly uh, other, other crimes and was held accountable for it by God. And so the idea that someone in leadership is insulated from critique by virtue of the fact that they're successful in their ministry is exactly the problem. That's not a defense. That's exactly the thing that's been going wrong is people are turning a blind eye to the people who get crushed by these leaders under the auspices of they're doing good stuff. I'm like, yeah, God can use people to do good stuff even when they're wicked. And that's his sovereign prerogative. But we're also called to uphold people to biblical standards. And so I don't think we should shy away from from addressing these people's problems just because they have successful ministries. In fact, that's exactly the problem is we use success to protect people from accountability. Well, the touch not God's anointed verse is one that I hear a lot. Um, The other one that I hear a lot is Matthew 18, that whenever um, I have criticized someone in the past, a pastor in the past or a ministry leader, I will inevitably get an email from me. Did you go to them personally? Did you confront them? Did you then take two or three more? Yeah. Did you, you know, in other words, they, they, they get very prescriptive about p- applying Matthew 18 and hold those that don't follow that prescription precisely in every context, they hold them accountable. They, uh, so, Talk about that. First of all, does Matthew 18 apply in this situation? A couple of thoughts for you. First of all, one of the things you're, you're, you're noting there is something I address in the book, which is that people are remarkably obsessed with process over the, the actual problem of abuse. So I'm amazed that you have a, a situation where you have an abusive leader. And rather than being upset by the abuse, which seems like a good biblical uh, way to respond, people are actually obsessed with making sure that you know, you follow the right steps and do the right paperwork and so forth. And I don't want to pretend for a moment the process doesn't matter. It's important like any judicial system. But what I'm routinely shocked by is it's almost like the real problem is the person coming forward. The real problem is the person making the accusation. The real problem is whether you follow the steps, not the abusive leader, it's you who brought it up. And I think that already sets the tone for the discussion. Now, secondly, as it pertains to Matthew 18, in the situation you described, Matthew 18 does not apply. This is a thing I make a point in the book. Matthew 18 applies to someone who sinned against you directly, not just whether someone has sinned in a way you can see, 
if I see that someone is sinned in a way that I can see, I'm free to call that person out publicly, and I don't have to go to them privately, according to Matthew 18, to do it. Because Matthew 18 says if your brother sins against you, not if he just sins in general. Um, and so I point out this. People use Matthew 18 like the cure-all, as if it was written to solve every possible church conflict. And I think I don't think that's the case. And I bring up n- numerous uh, qualifications in my book about Matthew 18. Yeah. You know, you, you've mentioned the qualifications for church leadership on the one hand, and that all of the ones that we see in Scripture, or most of the ones that we see, are related to character. You mentioned that teaching was the one that wasn't related to character. And, of course, we've also identified that there are a lot of pastors that fall short of those standards. So at what point does church polity, does discipline play a role in this process? Because when I hear you talk, there's a part of me that wants to say, hey, guys, this is really not that hard. You know, if a pastor is no longer meeting the qualifications set out in Scripture for leadership, then they should be removed from ministry, or they should be put in a you know, maybe in a season of rehabilitation and restoration. That rarely happens. Is that part of the problem here? Yeah, it's interesting. I agree 100% that a good church polity should solve this. And what I mean by that is, gee whiz, isn't there a group that should hold these guys accountable when they don't meet up to the standards of, of behavior that you, you deal with it, you discipline them, you remove them or whatever needs to be done? All that's true. Here's the problem is that there's plenty of churches with those whole systems in place that do nothing about abuse. And this is the reason I wrote the book. First of all, there's a misconception that having good polity is enough. And I, I say, no, no, there's plenty of churches with sophisticated church polity with thick books on how to run every judicial process that are not solving or addressing the problem of abuse. Why? Because they don't understand it. They don't know how to spot it. They don't even know what it is. And so they're actually not equipped to identify the problem. And they don't also appreciate the inherent bias, even in a judicial system, to protect your buddy to protect your friend. You basically are being tried by your, your friends. And there's a little bit of this in-house investigation problem i bring up in the book, is that when organizations investigate themselves, it rarely produces a good result. Usually they just defend themselves and defend their friends. Um, I wish it wasn't that way, but the case after case I've seen, it's exactly that way. So is polity enough? Well, you, you have it's a minimum, you have to have it, but you also have to have it well-trained, well-educated and structured in a way that actually acknowledges the realities that we're talking about here. Yeah, I want to, in a few minutes, Mike, come to some of the solutions to these problems, because one of the things I also appreciate about your book is that you close the book with a discussion of how to create a culture that resists spiritual abuse. And we will we will get to yep. that in a moment. But before we do that, I'd, I'd like to kind of get you to talk about one other significant issue that you discuss in the book. And and I think uh, one of the reasons that we that we don't follow the processes, even if we do have a sophisticated process in place, is that we don't and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this out loud for you to react to and tell me where I'm okay. right or wrong. I think maybe we don't have an adequate appreciation for the negative consequences of spiritual abuse. Yes. That if we really understood just how damaging yes. it was, that we would take it more seriously. You have a chapter in your book called Suffering in Silence that really talks about how you know, people's spiritual lives and emotional lives, uh, in some cases, their physical lives have just been wrecked by being victims of spiritual abuse. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Warren. And that's exactly right. I put that chapter in there 
for a reason is that I don't think people take it seriously because they don't really know what effect it has. They don't really know what it is. They've never experienced it themselves. And I can tell you this, it's not, it's not as if you have to experience it yourself to get it, but, but most people who have an experience just can't sort of understand the damage this does to someone emotionally. And by the way, this is why it has to be called spiritual abuse, because it's not just domineering behavior from a person. It's domineering behavior from someone who at least at some level represents God to you. Okay. Um, doesn't mean you think they speak infallibly or something like that, but they at least represent God in some fashion to you. Right. And the damage that does is, is really remarkable. And in my studies and my research, I uncovered more than this. Than I even realized just the damage emotionally, the damage physically, as you noted, spiritually. And then the other area that is often not talked is the relational damage to these people's lives, their friends, they lose the splits in the church. It's really, really awful to look at. And so I wanted the reader to get up close and really feel the impact of that. And, and my, my, my prayer is that if church leaders read this book, if, if elder boards read this book, that they can say, oh, wow, this really does damage. We need to take this seriously. We need to, we need to put this on the radar. Yeah. Well, I, that, I found that to be a very powerful chapter because sometimes, you know, we, we, we use words like bullying or spiritual abuse. And, you know, they don't, for some reason, have the same emotional impact as destroying a person's faith. Right. That's or, right. Or rape or sexual abuse. And, I, you know, and I want to be clear that those are very, very, very serious sins, and I'm not trying to diminish them in any way. But bullying and spiritual abuse can have very similar impacts. Oh, on yeah. In fact, mind. studies have shown you don't need to be physically assaulted to have the, a, a very similar psychological and emotional damage done by abusive behavior. Um, and again, as you noted, that's not to diminish the, the effect of physical assault. Um, it's simply acknowledging there's different ways to damage people. <laughs> and this is a way that I don't think we have a category for. Well, Mike, I'd like to pivot in our conversation because um, your book, Praise Be to God, does not leave us hanging. It does at least, uh, you know, offer some solutions. Let, I mean, let's just stipulate for the record that a conversation like this or even a book like yours cannot fully, um, you know, unpack all of the things that need to happen in our lives and our churches and in our in the evangelical culture generally. But you you do give us a pretty good start. And one, and I'm just going to mention a few of the ones that you mentioned in your book and ask you to, you know, say a few words about them. One is that as we said earlier, instead of looking for gifts over character, that we need to start valuing character over giftedness in the part of our leaders. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So in my last chapter, as you noted, I tried to lay out some practical steps. And, you know, in the scope of things, they're really tiny. I mean, they really are. They just try to get churches thinking differently and structurally changing a few things to help accommodate them. And one of them is the way we assess potential candidates. So one of the ways to, to deal with spiritual abuse, I know this sounds a little trite, but I really think it's true, is to try to keep them from getting in positions in the first place. In other words, how do we weed out the people who have abusive tendencies? And I think we need to rethink the way we assess character. I've done a lot of interviews myself. I've been in a lot of interviews over the years, and so have you. And we know how character is assessed. You have your references. You give them to somebody. They read their two or three references, and they assume all, all done here. When the references are handpicked friends, they're not really that that insightful in terms of really getting you to the heart of somebody. So I suggest a number of ways to go deeper, further, um, and really penetrate into the character question. And, and I bring up, you're going to find stuff if you do that. But, but at least you're honest about the person you're hiring and you know what you're dealing with rather than this sense of hiring the perfect pastor, put him up on a pedestal, and then you only find out later that he's not a perfect pastor. He's got all these problems. And I think we, we got we to gotta deal with that. 
Yeah. Um, another thing uh, that you talk about is that the whole issue of accountability um, that uh, and, and that's a big question. I know, you know, I, in my role as the president of Ministry Watch, I basically say that our ministry comes down to two things, trying to create an environment where there's more transparency and more accountability. So I was delighted, of course, to see those both of those ideas in your sure. book. But you unpack this a little bit in ways that I thought was helpful. You talk about accountability uh, over secrecy, which I think means in part increased transparency. And you also talk about limiting power. That yes. um, Can you say more about limiting power for the senior leader, what that looks like and why that is so important and valuable? Yeah, there's a remarkable way that the American church at least takes their pastor and puts them genuinely in a unique position that's just sort of above everybody else. Even if they say they're not doing that, lots of churches practically are doing that. He does all the teaching. He does all the leading. He chairs the session or the, the elder board. He's the one that is the pivot point for everything in the church. That creates a, a, a level of power that makes someone sort of untouchable and unsaleable. And, and what you have to do if you're going to keep abusive leaders from doing that, you need to make sure that that power is dissipated in a sense. It doesn't deny their role, but that doesn't give them sort of autonomy over everything. And so a suggestion was, I, I don't think if possible, they should do all the teaching because that definitely creates the sense of you're the only guy we listen to, right? Um, and I know some small churches probably can't rotate teaching as well. I argue they shouldn't necessarily always chair the elder board. They should be on the board and a key member of it, but there should be a sense in which other people do that. Um, and I think there's other ways also to make sure they're not uh, able to just fire staff whenever they want to. They're not a football coach, right? You get you, these football coaches come in, they get hired like, oh, I'm just going to fire everybody and start over. I have the full authority to do that. I think that's very dangerous to let senior pastors have that kind of authority. So those are some ways I suggest limiting power. And I think those are practical and helpful, and I hope people uh, implement some of them. Well, you know, one of the things, when I was doing a lot of reporting on the Mark Driscoll situation back when Marshall Hill Church was still around, one of the things that stunned me until I started digging around and realized that it was really not all that uncommon is that often the staff members will also be the elders. So if I'm an elder, but my paycheck is being signed by the pastor, or he has the ability to hire and fire me, there's a pretty serious financial and career disincentive for me to actually fulfill a biblical understanding of what my role as an elder should be. Is is that a fair statement? That's right. And not not all elders in churches, of course, are on paid staff, but you're right. A number of them are. And at Driscoll's Church, a lot of them were because it was a big church, a lot of paid staff. I bring this up in the book a number of places. Having someone as your both your pastor and your boss is weird. And I think the idea that they could be over you in a way that they could fire you if you don't submit to them and go along with them creates a real conflict of interest. And it really, it puts people in trapped situations. So I suggested in the book that there needs to be some other body that handles those situations so that a person's job is not on the line. Because what happens is it just is a way to silence people. What a senior pastor will do is like, basically, if you come against me, I'm going to fire you. And people know it and they stay silent and they don't do anything. And that, that has played out over and over and over again in the cases I studied. You know, Mike, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here or too granular because I know every situation is different, but but I want you to say some a little bit about annual reviews. One of the things that I appreciated about the book is that you, get, you did get specific. Yep. And I don't think that we talk enough about performance reviews or annual reviews, but for a pastor, it's really hard. I know I have sat on the leadership 
team uh, of my church. And, you know, once a year we have to approve the budget. And usually that involves, you know, looking at the pastor's compensation. And so, you know, we send him out of the room for 20 minutes and we talk about whether we like him or not. And, you know, whether he did a good job or not in the past year. And then we give right. him it's all a pretty raise, informal, right? really. It really is. And um, even while I was in the midst of that process, I was having disquiet about it. But what can we do differently? What what should a a really helpful performance review, annual review look like for a yeah, senior well, leader? Several things. First of all, it needs to be 360, meaning that it can't just be the elders. It needs to be the people who are under the senior pastor and work for him, able to give feedback. Um, and so it can't just be the elders saying, we think you're doing a good job. How, do, how does the people this person leads think he's doing? How are they responding to his leadership? Also, secondly, there needs to be a certain level of anonymity. And you you got to be able to speak freely without getting re- repercussions. And so I suggest that that needs to be built into the process at some level. Third, there needs to be full disclosure of the reviews. I can't tell you how many churches I study where the, the pastor gets reviews and the elders never see the reviews. They have no idea there's a problem because it's in some subcommittee, which is another major problem. And the other thing I mentioned is that the, the senior pastor has to re- do annual reviews of all his staff. Um, that sounds odd to people. Like, well, why is that? How's that help? It protects the staff. Because I can't tell you the retaliatory tactics of these abusive leaders. If you cross them, they're going to accuse you of everything. But if you've got eight or 10 years of good reviews and suddenly the pastor accusing you of everything looks vindictive. It doesn't look like he's got any real, real basis for saying that. So those annual reviews of the staff under the senior pastor actually protect the staff. And I think that's a really key part of keeping people safe. Yeah. Well, I found that part of uh, your book to be helpful. Mike, I'd like to pivot one more time um, and maybe come back around to the beginning to a certain extent. And because you're, you're not only an author of a really excellent new book, and I am grateful for the book, and of course, we've talked about the book, but you are also, um, you know, the president of a seminary. And so I, I can't resist trying to tie the two together uh, sure. and, and talk a little about that. So th- the first question that I would have is that has writing this book, researching this book and writing this book, caused you either to do anything different in your role as a seminary leader or plan to do something different, hope to do something different, realize that, you know what, we've got to make changes here and these are the specific changes. Have you had that conversation with yourself and others? Absolutely. So I think there's two layers to it. One is a personal layer. I think the more I study this, I realize how dangerous leadership is and how it can really bless people and really hurt people if you're not careful. And so in my role, one of the personal applications of my own book is I just want to continue to work even harder at being the kind of gentle, soft leader that I need to be, like as much like Christ as I can be. There's 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 times I need to stand up for truth and be strong, yes. But I, I realize that, that leaders don't realize how influential they are and how impactful they are. So I just on a personal level, I'm trying to apply the book to myself. But then structurally and curriculum level, I think RTS you know, my goal is to try to build this into our curriculum in some key places. I was sort of, I don't know, embarrassed is too strong a word, but as I finished writing the book, I realized we don't even really address this in our curriculum. And that's just not, that's not acceptable. We need to have a place that we address this. And so I'm working on that right now, trying to figure out where, what slots in the curriculum we're going to try to put people face to face with this issue. So they're, they're, they know how to not be an abusive leader themselves, which of course is step one, and then that they know how to spot it if it happens to them. You've been listening in on my conversation with Dr. Michael Kruger. His new book, the one we've been talking about today, is Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. If you want to read more from Mike Kruger, I recommend his fascinating website, 
michaeljkruger.com. He has a blog there called Cannon Fodder. That's Cannon with one N. A couple of quick notes before we go. First, if you're new to the program, check out the Listening In archives. I've done more than 450 long-form interviews like the one you heard today over the past nine years for World News Group. I'd like to recommend in particular an interview that I did just a few weeks ago with Caitlin Beatty, whose book, Celebrities for Jesus, covers some of the same issues we discussed today. And I'd also like to recommend my 2015 interview with Phil Cook. We discussed his book, The Last TV Evangelist, which is a critique of many of the problems in evangelical culture, especially those that are related to celebrity. And he takes special aim at prosperity gospel preachers. Just go to the World News Group website, that's WNG.org, and use the search engine to explore. Listening In comes to you from World News Group, and this program is just one of the many podcasts and publications available. To find out more about our complete family of products, visit WNG.org. Tune in next week to hear my conversation with Bart Barber. Barber is the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention. We have a candid talk about the recent sex abuse scandal in the SBC and his vision for the future of the nation's largest evangelical denomination. The producer for today's program is Paul Butler. Johnny Franklin is our technical producer. Production assistance comes from Lillian Hammond. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and you've been listening in. Now We Live invites and equips Christians to propel faith into action. This free worldview Bible study will spark rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions. Watch Summit Ministries' worldview video series for free at summit.org slash listening in. These six videos from Summit Ministries offer life-on-life discipleship for churches, small groups, and families. Get free access today at summit.org slash listening in.